You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this morning. Once again, we turn first of all to Genesis chapter 49, 1 to 12 for our Old Testament reading. As you can see above the chapter, it speaks about Jacob blessing his sons shortly before he dies. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Simeon and Levi are brothers, their weapons are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council, let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk." As far as our Old Testament reading, we turn then to Revelation 5, 1 to 5 for our New Testament reading. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Our text this morning is taken from Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. 
He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy and with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four corners or quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish, and Judah's enemies will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will lay hands on Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that men can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, today is the second Sunday of Advent. And that may not mean much to you, but in the history of the Christian church, these Four Sundays before the birth of our Savior have always been special. They represent a unique time in which to give special attention to the remarkable and most anticipated birth in history. For no birth has ever been like this birth. No coming has ever had deeper longing or more prayers as well as tears attached to it. And you can see that as well. You can see that especially in the book of Isaiah. Of all of the books of the Bible, Isaiah is the preeminent Advent book. It says more about the coming Messiah than perhaps any other. Yes, and sometimes it says that in the strangest, oddest of ways. An example of that can be found here in our text of this morning. For here we come face to face with the announcement that the approaching Messiah could be likened to a tree. 
but then to the remnants of a chopped off, cut off tree. And so I preach to you this morning on the following theme, the stump Messiah. We're going to look, first of all, at a desperate situation. Secondly, a spirit remedy. Thirdly, a remarkable peace. And finally, a never forgotten people. Well, beloved, our text opens around the year 700 B.C. and the situation in Israel is desperate. King Sennacherib is camped outside the walls of Jerusalem and he is not roasting marshmallows. No, he and his men are sharpening their swords and getting ready for the final assault. Soon, Jerusalem will be theirs and Israel, Judah, will be no more. In short, you can say this is a bad, bad time for God's people. It's unlike any time that you and I have ever experienced. I don't think any of us has ever been on the receiving end of a siege. We don't know what it's like to live in a locked-up city with the enemy at the gate, with food growing scarce, with doom on the horizon, with everyone wondering who is going to live and who is going to die. Well, now, beloved, in such a terrible time, the prophet Isaiah comes on the scene. And what does he do? What does he say? Well, for one, he says, for openers, that Judah is like a stump. I trust you all know what a stump actually is. It's the remains of a cut-off tree. You may know I grew up in southern Ontario, and in my youth, that province was covered with big, beautiful, majestic elm trees. But then in a matter of a few short years, all of those fantastic trees started to die. They contracted Dutch elm disease. Yep, the Dutch did it. And they all had to be cut down. And the result was that Ontario was littered with stumps, ugly, protruding stumps, where all that remained of those once tall, gracious, and shady trees. The devastation even made grown men cry. Well, now in Isaiah's day, the same could be said of Judah. A once proud and mighty nation was cut down. And all that remained was this stump, this little piece of the base of the tree that you could barely see. It was almost down to to nothing. Almost invisible. But then some of the gardeners among us will know that stumps can sometimes, not often, but sometimes surprise you. You know, you have this tree in your backyard and its leaves suddenly start to fall off and you, you go up to it and you bend one of its branches and it snaps, its color fades. You say to yourself, it's got to be dead. So you cut it down. But then lo and behold, it doesn't stay dead. 
A little shoot starts to rise out of what you have cut down. And sometimes a whole new tree grows out of it. Well now, beloved, that is what is about to happen to Israel. Isaiah predicts a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Just when you think the game is over, just when you assume this is all a dead deal, new life appears. A shoot's coming. A branch is starting to rise. And out of the dead stump of Judah, Isaiah says the Messiah of Israel and of the world is going to come. Yes, the Messiah comes out of a stump. Suddenly the stump Messiah will leap on the stage of redemptive history. But then how do we know this will be the Messiah? Well, for an answer, you can turn to the verses 2 to 4. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and power. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Notice it's all about the Spirit. But even more correctly, it's about the Spirit and the Messiah. For the Spirit is going to supply him with wisdom and understanding. Normally one of those qualities is enough, but he has two. And that underlines the fact that he is endowed with great smarts. And the Spirit will also give him counsel or the ability to plan well. And power, which is the ability to bring all of these plans to fruition. And as well, the Spirit will give him knowledge and fear twice. It mentions this fear. Meaning, this Messiah will have and know the true meaning of reverence and awe. Thanks to the Spirit, this Messiah will be supremely equipped to carry out his great work. But there is also more, beloved, for to all of these great personal qualities needs to be added great messianic work. Look at the verses 3 to 5. He will use these qualities we've just mentioned, these qualities of the Spirit, to judge well, to make wise decisions, to deal compassionately with the needy and the poor, to punish and to pulverize the wicked. Indeed, he will be wrapped, as it says in verse 5, in righteousness and faithfulness. Of course, you may be saying to yourself, well, that's wonderful. And that's great, but what does that have to do with me? It's fine that God, through the Spirit, equips the Messiah in this way, but this has very little to do with me today in the 21st century. Wrong. You need to remember, a servant is not above his master. And indeed, think of this connection of what it says in Luke 11. There the Lord Jesus says, Which of you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? 
Or he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts or give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, here in Isaiah, God promises to give the Holy Spirit to the Messiah. But don't disconnect that from the fact that he also gives the Spirit to you. He himself says he gives the Spirit to those who ask him. So we need to ask the Father for the Spirit. And you need to ask him over and over again. We constantly need to pray for the Spirit's power, the Spirit's discernment, the Spirit's wisdom. But of course we don't always do that, do we? We assume that Christ needs the Spirit because He's got big work to do, but we're just little fry. We don't have much to do, so we don't really need the Spirit. But how wrong we can be. And it shows. Shows in the silly things we say, in the dumb things we do, in the bad decisions that we make. We too need the Spirit. We need Him desperately. If Jesus needed Him, we need Him even more. So I would say to you, beloved, take God up on his gracious invitation in Luke 11. He urges you to do so. Do not disappoint him and do not continue to live your life in a stunted and deprived manner. Ask for the Spirit. And so, beloved, thus far you can see in our text that Isaiah reveals... That these are desperate times, that the stump Messiah is coming, and that this Messiah will come with the Spirit and with might. But there's more. For next, he also gives Israel, the Israel of his day, a peek into what's going to be the ultimate result and consequence of the Messiah's coming. Look at the verses 6 to 9. It's, it's a wonderful Startling picture. Surprising. Only don't get lost in the details. First ask yourself, what's the the big picture in these verses 6 to 9? And you know what the big picture is? It's that the curse is one day going to be removed. The curse that rests on creation. For look, the wolf will live with the lamb. You and I know wolves don't live with lambs, right? They eat them. They love lamb chops. The leopard will lie down with the goat. Are you kidding? The only time a leopard lies down with a goat is when he can munch on his remains. And as for the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them? Isn't that just impossible imagery? Calves, lions, yearlings, 
for one, are hardly playmates. And what parent in his or her right mind would have their little son or daughter lead such an unlikely parade made up of calves, lions, and yearlings? I dare say that wants a call to social services. And also in speaking about young cows and lions romping around in the hay, Lions will change their diets and eat straw. Might even depict children as playing with cobras and vipers. You see, beloved, what you have here is, is a totally impossible, improbable, inconceivable description. And yet Isaiah says it'll come true. Verse 9 declares, They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Notice it says, The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Isaiah is predicting a day when the earth and everything in it will be changed, transformed. And it'll be full of divine knowledge. And it'll be a most remarkable place of peace and harmony. And of course that naturally leads to the next question, which is when? When will this be? Now you may know there are two rather common views. The one is that Isaiah is referring here to a special millennial kingdom. In other words, some people read this part of Scripture in connection with Revelation 20, and and they say this describes a special, literal, thousand-year period in time when Christ will reign in righteousness. The other view is that you need to link Isaiah 11 to Revelation 21 and 22, where it speaks about a new heaven and a new earth. And this view says this picture has everything to do with what will happen on a new earth. For their unimaginable peace and harmony will reign. Well, beloved, of those two views, I would opt for the second. I would say to you that you need to connect Isaiah 11 to the end of Revelation. And to a future that is filled with peace, with eternal peace. Not just for a thousand years, but for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. A glorious, everlasting, eternal peace and harmony and concord and unity is coming. But how do we know it's coming? Well, in part, beloved, we know it's coming because it's already evident in part today. For that's the purpose of Isaiah talking about the coming of the stump Messiah. When the stump Messiah comes, he's going to start this whole peace process. He's going to put it in motion. 
Remember the, the angels singing above the fields of Ephrathah? One of the things they sang about was peace on earth. And you may recall the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 saying that Christ himself is our peace. When he comes, he already brings the beginning of this eternal peace. A great illustration of that is, is for example, the relationship between Jew and Gentile. You know as well as I that all through the pages of the Old Testament, the Jews looked down their long noses at the Gentiles. And the Gentiles in turn looked at the Jews as if they were some kind of weird, weird people. And the result of all of that misunderstanding, that hostility was often conflict, even war and bloodshed. But then Jesus Christ comes. And what does Jesus Christ do? He, he takes what is essentially two entities and he makes them one. The Apostle Paul speaks about the breaking, demolishing down of the wall of hostility. So you see, the stump Messiah is the Messiah who also brings peace. He'll bring Jew and Gentile together. And not just them. You can read it throughout history how Jesus Christ has reconciled the most unlikely of people. I was reading the other day about two people celebrating the Lord's Supper together, sitting side by side. And the one used to be a cannibal. And the other sitting beside him was related to some of the people that the cannibal had eaten. And they're sitting side by side at the supper of the Lord. That's only one illustration of reconciliation through the blood of the Lamb. The peace is here and the peace is coming. But beloved, there's also more. There's one more thing that you need to take note of, and you find that in the last part of our text. For at the same time, you need to realize that this prophecy of Isaiah comes to a rather down-and-out people, and a people who consider themselves to be ignored, dismissed, punished, and forgotten by God. So Isaiah can talk about peace, but what good does it do them? Well, look at the verses 6 or 10 to 16. First of all, look at the change in verse 10. Isaiah now moves from the stump of Jesse to the root of Jesse, and that's important. It's his way of reminding us that the Messiah is more than simply the shoot or a branch. He's also the root. In other words, he's not just Jesse's son, but he's also Jesse's origin and source. The son comes from Jesse. But ultimately, Jesse comes from the son. He is his son, and he is his Lord. Well, now in that capacity as the divine and everlasting Lord, Jesus Christ, the root of Jesse stands as a banner for the peoples. 
Notice verse 10. The nations will rally to him. His place of rest will be glorious. And if you read on, you see that here Isaiah is predicting that one day this stump Messiah is going to gather people, his people, from all the tribes and nations of the earth. And of course, as Isaiah is predicting all of this and uttering all of this, it seems utterly absurd. Here the Assyrians are rapping on the door. They're getting to ready to devour whatever remains of God's people Israel. And Isaiah is going on and on about this stump Messiah and about his international following. Doesn't that sound absolutely ridiculous? I'm sure many of them thought, what an exercise in prophetic wishful thinking. What utter nonsense. Only a prophet can come up with that. And yet it's true. We know that what Isaiah predicts here about the Christ is true because we see the proof of it. Today, we as Gentiles, and that's almost all of us, right, belong to the people of God. Today, the root of Jesse is our Savior and our Lord. Today, he is a banner to the nations and people everywhere are rallying to his banner. And today we can sit here as Africans, Americans, Canadians, Chinese, Dutch, Koreans, because Christ is the banner that unites us. Isaiah wasn't wrong after all. And of course that's, that's great, but you know, if you're a Jew living back In Isaiah's time, you may be asking yourself, what about us? It's fine for Isaiah to talk about peoples and nations, but what about us Jews? Here we are living on the edge of extinction. So what about the Jews? What about the ancient people of God? Well, notice Isaiah also has a word for them. First, in the verses 11 and 12, he stresses how the stump Messiah will gather the scattered from both Gentile and Jew. He will raise a banner for the nations, there you have it again, and gather the exiles of Israel. Israel is added. And look at how God is going to reclaim the remnant of Israel that is in Assyria, Egypt, Cush, Elam, Babylonia, Hamath, and the Isles. And look to it how Isaiah adds, He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from all the four corners of the earth. Isaiah says the lost of Israel will be found. People, you don't have to worry. The scattered are going to be gathered. And second, in the verses 13 and 14, Isaiah describes the healing of divisions. 
You know, for centuries already, you had had in Israel this antagonism, this enmity between members of the ten tribes versus members of the two tribes. They'd always been at loggerheads. Hated and despised each other to even on a war against one another. But no more. Isaiah says one day the hostility and the jealousy will be over. They will even get together. And together, they will deal with their enemies. The Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites. They'll all be defeated by them together. And then third, beloved, in the verses 15 and 16, we see described, and that's maybe a little hard to get your mind around, but actually what you're seeing described here is the removal of all barriers. The Red Sea and the Euphrates River were two of the greatest barriers in the Middle East. But they'll represent obstacles no more. Instead, they're going to give way to a highway. And on that highway, the remnant of God's people, Israel, will make their way home. Yes, they'll come home. But then pay attention to one more fact, and that is the use of the word remnant in verse 11 and 16. When Isaiah is talking about people coming together again, the people of Israel, he's talking about a remnant. You know, even one of his own sons was called a remnant. One of Isaiah's sons, you can find that in Isaiah 7, is called Shi'ar Yeshup, which means a remnant will return. One of Isaiah's sons is therefore a walking billboard of the fact that a remnant of God's people will one day come back. But at the same time, of course, that means that not all will return. Not each and every Jew will be saved. No, a believing, believing remnant will be redeemed. And so, beloved, we need to realize this is what will happen. And Israel, too, needs to realize that this is what will happen. Here, Isaiah is reminding a a besieged people and a besieged city that, that those who believe the promises of God need not fear. God will not forget them. No matter how dire their situation, no matter how deep their need, no matter how how terrible their sufferings, God does not forget His people. He will not forget His remnant from Israel. How many of them did not return later on to the promised land? And you might even say that he does not forget his remnant among the Jews even today. All those who believe in him will be brought in 
by him. And that includes not just the remnants among Israel, it also includes the remnants among the Gentiles. Of course, I realize there are theologians today who, says, who say that everybody is going to be saved, a kind of universal gospel kind of thing, but that's not what the Scripture is teaching. Scripture affirms time and time again that God does not forget those who are truly, truly His, from Jew and Gentile alike. And of course, at times it may not feel like it. I'm sure in Isaiah's day it didn't feel like it. At times we all may wonder about our God and what he's doing. At times we doubt his care, his love, his faithfulness, his promises. You know, when you do, you need to read another part of Isaiah. Isaiah 49. Where it says, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. To which the Lord answers, can a mother forget the baby at a breast? And have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget. I will never forget you. See, I have graven you on the palms of my hands. Neither the stump Messiah nor the father of the stump Messiah will ever forget you. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.